into God's Word, which is why we have gathered. So please pull out your Bible. We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 52 and 53 this morning. See, these last four weeks, we've been in a season that we call Advent. And Advent just quite literally means arrival. We've been celebrating the first arrival of Jesus in humility in the manger, while anticipating his second arrival in glory. And on our way towards Bethlehem, we have read through and looked at the Messiah as the book of Isaiah has prophesied him. See, the book of Isaiah, interestingly written 700 years before the birth of Jesus, but it's just chock full of promises pointing to our king, signs of the Savior to come. Isaiah gives us these reasons to rejoice, not just walk through rituals, to have joy, not just familiarity with the king of the world. And so that's who we we look to today. We look to the one who has been told is Emmanuel, the one we've seen is the light of the world, the one we've seen to be the branch of Jesse, and this morning, the suffering servant in Isaiah 52 and 53. So if you haven't yet, please turn there. I will pray for us as we enter in a time of hearing from God and his word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that as we gather, you are here. You are speaking. You have assembled your people to hear from your word because we need you. Lord, we acknowledge the many things that we have brought into this room on our hearts, on our minds, both joys, both struggles, both difficulties, and yet we bring them them here to lay them down at your feet. Lord, we know that more than anything else, we need to hear from you. And so now, Lord, I pray that as we open your word, you would speak to us. You would use imperfect people such as myself to present and point to a perfect Savior in Jesus. I pray that you would fill me with your spirit so that you would guard my mouth from saying anything other than what would make most of him. Help me to proclaim his majesty and worth and help us to have eyes that see, the eyes of our hearts that see and savor this wonderful Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. All right. Many of us have been listening to Christmas music for at least four weeks. Some of us back to like Halloween. If you could only listen to one Christmas song for the rest of your life, only one, only one on the car, repeat in that CD, one favorited on Spotify, what would you listen to? Joy of the World? Hark the Herald Angels Sing? Grandma Got Run Over by a Reindeer? I know someone, someone used to listen to that. See, we, we like to favorite and put on repeat the songs that mean a lot to us. And interestingly, Isaiah 52 and 53 is a song. It's called the fourth servant song. It's a song that Isaiah, the fourth one that he writes between chapter 42 and 53 to help us sing and celebrate the Messiah. And it's one of the most majestic, one of the most beautiful and alluring songs ever penned in paper. And we know it's so popular because it's put on repeat all the way into the New Testament, 700 years later. This song itself is explicitly cited no fewer than seven times. And yet we also can hear echoes of it resounding on like every single page. It guides how we understand who Jesus is and what he's done. It is kind of like the Mount Everest to mountain climbers or the Hawaiian islands to beach lovers, it is beautiful. It is majestic, it's alluring, and it's almost confusing in its setup. It's a song, it's a poem. It's not just 
line by line, simple as that. Isaiah has composed it in five stanzas of three verses. And you know how many songs kind of start out with like a sandwich? You have like a piece of bread and a piece of bread, and then you get the toppings, the sauce, and then right in the middle you get the the meat, the, the star of the sandwich? This song is kind of like that. The stanzas on the outside are like pieces of bread. As you get closer to the middle, you get the toppings and the special sauce. Good, but not quite the meat of the sandwich. And then in verse 4, stanza 3, verse 4 to 6, we hear of pure gospel delicacy. We're meant to see our Messiah, who is the suffering servant. That's Isaiah's big idea. And that's our big idea today as well. The Messiah is the suffering servant. And this suffering servant has good news for all who will hear. See, Isaiah is writing to a people who will soon be taken into exile in Babylon, living under a foreign king in a foreign land. They're looking for hope. Isaiah is also writing to us prophetically, those who are looking for hope, looking for hope amidst the spiritual exile that we would otherwise walk in. And so he points our eyes to the suffering servant to answer this question. How can unholy people be reconciled to a holy God? How can unholy people, flawed, imperfect people like you and I, be brought into right relationship with a perfectly majestic and holy God? And he says, the only way is through our suffering servant, the sin-bearing substitute, who is Jesus Christ. And that's who we're meant to see. So now we're going to see, what is a suffering servant like? Well, we see, interestingly, that he won a humiliating success. I know those words don't usually go together, but we're going to see it clearly. A humiliating success after a horrendous suffering on our behalf. And he did it all to be our holy substitution. Let's look to the suffering servant and first see his humiliating success in stanza one and five. So it might look like we're jumping around, but remember, stanza one and five is like the bread to the sandwich, the first and the last, helping us see as we get closer and closer to the middle. So stanza one and five, beginning in Isaiah 52, verse 13, if you'd like to read along. And I believe they're always up on the screen, so I don't know why I say that. (laughs) Thank you, David. Behold, my servant shall act wisely, He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Now we jump to chapter 53, verse 10, the last stanza. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. How would you define the successful life? What does success look like in your definition? Does it look like a good job? Well-behaved kids? 
comfy retirement, a nice bank account? Isaiah says, not so fast. Not so fast. Isaiah is pointing us to the most successful one to ever live, and he said he came to serve. Isaiah is pointing us to the ultimate hero and says he's the humblest one who's ever walked this earth. Verse 13, God speaks of Jesus. He says, behold, behold, the neon sign in the night, the divine highlighter. Pay attention. My servant, my son, come to do my will. My servant, the one whom Isaiah says has come to serve us. And we know he's come to serve us because Isaiah prophesies it, but then Jesus says it of himself. Jesus said in Mark chapter 10, the Son of Man has come not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. But the servant was successful. See, this passage, verse 10 says, or verse 12 says, he was, he will act wisely. Act wisely. In the original, that means will be victorious. He's going to succeed. And we know it's success because of the three words that follow. Look at the three words that follow. He's going to be high. Lifted up, exalted. This is a picture of a king. The picture of the most victorious king you could ever imagine. The victory that he wins is no minor miracle. It's not like the little victories that you and I celebrate where we get our to-do list checked off or maybe after worship on Sunday you rush to Golden Corral to be first in line. This is not that kind of victory. This is the victory that comes after a perfect sinless life a substitutionary but gruesome death on the cross. And then he didn't stay dead. He was risen from the dead. After three days, he walked out of that tomb alive. He defeated any and every enemy that could ever separate us from God. Sin, Satan, and death, he said, stand down, I am standing up. See, Isaiah starts with the ending up front because it's meant to frame our story. It's meant to frame how we approach God. Isaiah doesn't want us to pity the servant. He wants us to worship the servant. Isaiah doesn't want your pity. He wants your worship. He's showing you the victorious king. Look upon the one who has risen from the dead. This is the king. This is the suffering servant. And yet before he rose, he was marred disfigured, humiliated even. Let's turn to verse 11, or verse 14, I'm sorry, of chapter 52. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred. So this is a bad kind of astonishment. His appearance was so marred, beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. He was marred, disfigured, before exalted and resurrected. Remember the picture of Jesus, the suffering servant that we're given in Mark chapter 16, the, almost the very last moments before his death. There he is, our king. He's wearing a crown, but of thorns, with blood coursing down his forehead. He's being hailed as king, but it's in mocking jest. Hail, king of the Jews. He's stripped of his clothes. He's beaten on his back. People weren't asking, is this the Messiah? Because they were looking for a conquering king. They were asking, is this human? Is he human? He was marred. He was disfigured before exalted. He was humiliated unto death. But it was his death that brought purification, brought our victory. Go to verse 15. So shall he sprinkle many nations. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Sprinkling 
It's the word that's used to describe the activity of priests in the Old Testament, where they would be slaughtering animal after animal. See, we think of priests, and we think well put together, nicely, nice white robes, pretty clean. Priests in the Old Testament, you might have well as called them butchers. <laughs> what they were doing time after time, you read Leviticus, they're slaughtering animal after animal, sprinkling this blood on the altar of God because the blood of the animals was temporary. It was imperfect, a kind of stand-in substitute for the blood of a perfect sacrifice. And they had to slaughter animal after animal because none of this was righteous sacrifice. It wasn't perfect or permanent. And so here, the suffering servant says he's going to sprinkle many nations. He's going to become the priest and the sacrifice. He's going to offer a blood that supersedes and goes beyond the imperfect, the unrighteous blood of animals in the Old Testament. He's going to offer his blood. He is divine. He has righteous blood. He lived a sinless life. He's the only permanent, perfect sacrifice that could ever atone, pay the price that our sin deserves. And yet to do so, he has to be crushed. Look now to the fifth stanza, the second piece of bread. We're going to jump down to chapter 53, verse 10. God's plan that many nations would be sprinkled, be brought into salvation. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. The will of the Lord said twice. Did you catch what it was? Did you catch what the will of the Lord was? To crush the servant in order to save sinners. That's shocking. That's appalling. That should be offensive. The will of the Lord is to crush the servant in order to save sinners. And yet even more shocking than this stark revelation is that the willingness of the servant was met with the willingness of the father. The servant willingly becomes the sacrifice sprinkling his own blood on the altar of God to satisfy the Father's wrath against our sin. See, we know that. It's his, his soul. Verse 53, verse 10. Chapter 53, verse 10. His soul, his soul, the soul of the servant, makes an offering for our guilt. The only way that we can become offspring. It says offspring in here. Children. The only way that we can become children of God is through the perfect high priest giving his blood as the slaughtered sacrifice for us. This is the will of the Lord. And yet it came out of, this victory came out of so much anguish, so much sorrow. Look at verse 11 and 12. Out of the anguish of his soul, the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many be accounted righteous and bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many and divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. The soul of the servant was anguished. You know how anguished it was? Think back to the Garden of Gethsemane, Matthew chapter 26. Jesus says, My soul is very sorrowful unto death. 
He knows the worst sufferings that you and I will ever walk through. He anticipated and knew what it was to anticipate his own death. He knows anguish of the soul. And yet it's this anguish that led to his satisfaction. And here he tells us what his goal is. What satisfies him most is rebels like you and I becoming his children. He says his goal here, the satisfaction of his soul, is to make many be accounted righteous. Make many be accounted righteous. This is transactional language. Imputing to us, giving us, crediting to our account something we don't have. A righteousness, a perfect record before God. We don't have that. But he accounts it to us. And you know what he does in return? He absorbs the debt of the injustice against God that we have accrued in our sin. It's the divine substitution, the greatest exchange of transactional worth you'll ever know. Imputed righteousness, absorbed wrath. That's the goal of the servant. That's what his anguish sought to accomplish, and it comes through faith in his work. His life, his death, his resurrection brings upon you the transaction that you need for eternity. This is the suffering servant. See, we measure the power of God by the empty tomb, as one pastor says. The servant suffered, but he didn't stay dead. The servant suffered to win our victory. And his victory over sin, Satan, and death proves the great power of God. The greatness of the God who is now high and lifted up. The name that is above all names. The name at whom every knee will bow and tongue confess is the suffering servant's name, Jesus Christ. He is great. He is powerful. His humiliation led to success. And so the question for us is, where are you tempted to doubt the greatness of God? Where are you tempted to downplay the power of God, even potentially doubt the power of God to bring about life amidst an otherwise lifeless situation? Are you walking through something quite difficult right now? Many of us are. And we know that in these difficulties, the only hope we have is the power of God to bring about restoration, to bring about change. So my invitation to you in this season is depend on the power of God instead of your power. Look to the one who conquered death and your sin to bring about life amidst lifeless situations in your life. He has won a humiliating success, and it comes through horrendous suffering on our behalf. Let's go to stanza two and four now. We're going to see horrendous suffering. Stanza two and four, the toppings and the special sauce of this gospel sandwich. We're going to start in Isaiah 53, verse 1. And here we go. Who has believed what he has heard from us? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Then we jump down to verse 7. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that's before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence 
and there was no deceit in his mouth. A picture can be worth a thousand words. A picture can be worth a thousand words. My wedding photo is one such picture. I'm going to try to paint the image here. It's, it's kind of silly and sad all at once. There I am, 25 years old, and looking a generous 18. A generous 18. Wearing a gray suit, purple tie, wide smile, marrying the girl of my dreams. Next to me is Jen, brown hair, bright eyes, beautiful dress, and of course her stoic dad seemed to be over her shoulder in just about every picture we took that day. It, it was a phenomenal day, but... Um, Yes, I can practically, you know, remembering this image, it almost makes me recount the smell of the summer air, the sound of the applause that we heard as we recessed down the aisle. See, these vivid pictures, reminders of our past, can conjure up fresh emotion, can't they? You probably have a picture in your mind right now of something that happened in your life that conjures up fresh emotion. It invites you in. It compels a response. Stanza two and four is a picture worth a thousand words. Stanza 2 and 4 is Isaiah painting before us the most vivid picture of horrendous suffering. It's not of incredible joy yet. It's a picture of horrendous suffering. He paints with his words a picture that is so graphic, so vivid, it makes us wonder, was Isaiah there at the foot of the cross? How could he have known what was going to happen 730 years later? He's standing, it seems like he's there at the foot of the cross. He's inviting us to stand next to him, look up at our crucified Savior, and wonder with at least a thousand words, oh my goodness, how could this happen? The most horrendous suffering, sorrow, bewilderment, shock, confusion, a thousand words, in this picture of horrendous suffering. Looking first at verse 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Belief in the Lord, belief in this guy, the Messiah, who looked like a pauper but is actually the Prince of Peace, only comes through revelation. The arm of the Lord opening the eyes of the heart to see him as the king. See, he wasn't beautiful in appearance. He wasn't dignified in his life. He wasn't honored at his death. But look at verse 2. He grew up like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. Guys, he's saying this is an unimpressive root out of dry ground. We looked at him and we thought, there's no way life is coming out of this. We looked at him and we wanted a conquering king to overthrow the government. No way this guy on the cross is our suffering servant, our savior. Remember, his birth was just as undignified as his death. He was born in a dirty manger in an overlooked town of Bethlehem. He wasn't welcomed into the baby and delivery unit at Carbondale Hospital. He didn't have a tent of nurses or clean diapers or a warm swaddle. The first thing that hit his nostrils, the smell of wild animals. The first thing that brushed up against his soft skin, rough straw. He wasn't considered beautiful at birth. He wasn't called dignified in life. He wasn't even honored at his death. He was despised, rejected. He was doubted, and it turned to disdain. Verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men, 
a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Birth wasn't easy. Life, birth wasn't pretty, and life wasn't easy. Birth wasn't pretty, and life wasn't easy. He was despised. Isaiah says it twice. He wants us to know he was despised. He was rejected by men. Remember when Jesus shows up in John chapter 1, verse 11? He says, I've come to my own, and my own have rejected me. Isaiah says he's been despised and rejected by men. He's using a comprehensive, inclusive, third-person, plural pronoun. Us. Us. Despised and rejected by men. Not just the men of John chapter 1, but you and I as well. We have, by nature and choice, we have said no thanks or I doubt that this is the Messiah. Just like we say no thanks to the unwanted side dish at Christmas dinner or the fruitcake on the dessert plate that Aunt Susie brought. We don't want any part of it. We want the cookies. We were looking for the king, not the sufferer. He was despised. No wonder, Isaiah says, he was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He knew rejection. He knew what it was to be told, no thanks, I don't want you. I don't know about you, but that brings me hope. My suffering servant, my Savior, knows what it feels like to be rejected, so when I feel rejected, I can run to him. He was rejected and despised, but he was still determined to serve us. Despised but determined. Jump down to verse 7. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, like a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. His messy birth was followed by a despised life that led to an oppressive death, suffering, He stepped down into Bethlehem knowing it was the first step towards Calvary at the cross. He knew what he was going to have to suffer in that anguish, and yet he didn't object. He didn't object. It says he went silently like a lamb before its shearers, a lamb going to the slaughterhouse. You and I know what happens at the slaughterhouse. It's like the most gruesome place we could ever imagine. Everyone knows what happens at the slaughterhouse except the animals. And yet, Jesus, the Lamb of God, who knows all things, goes willingly. His silent obedience goes willingly to the slaughter that you and I deserve for our sin. He doesn't object And it's his silence, his righteous silence, that stands in contrast to our loud rejection. Do you hear that? The righteous, soul-piercing silence of the Lamb of God before the slaughter that we deserve. And let's hear something else to complete this picture. Our need for his silence, his willingness. In Matthew chapter 27 the worst kind of loud rejection is heard. See, the night before Jesus was 
brought unto crucifixion. He was captured by the chief priests and the elders. They were afraid of him. They brought him before trial, gave him to Pilate. Pilate puts before the crowd this raucous, round, despising crowd. And he offers to release Barabbas, a known criminal, or Jesus, perfectly innocent. He says, whom should I release for you, Barabbas or Jesus? What does the crowd say? Barabbas. Pilate's just as shocked as we probably were. He says, why? What evil has he done? What do they say? Crucify him. Pilate just can't get over it. Well, what should I do with Jesus? Crucify him. Let his blood be on us and our children. Do you hear that? That's the din of rejection. The cacophony of rebellion. And it's not just their shouts, guys. It's our shouts, too. He has been rejected by men. We are part of that crowd. Every time we'd rather go it alone, every time we try to be like God instead of trusting Him, every time we live for our glory instead of His, every time we desire our heart's affections instead of His desires and live according to His commands, we're shouting with our hearts and our actions, crucify Him, crucify Him. It's His blood that was shed for our sin. His blood for our sin. The silence of our Lamb for the loudness of our rejection. He was cut off from the land of the living because we sinned. His hands and feet were pierced. His bones were broken. His crown was bloodied. He was anguished even though he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. What a vivid picture. What a vivid picture of horrendous suffering. And this picture paints before us at least a thousand words, doesn't it? It paints before us the reality that we need this suffering servant, that we in our, our rejection of him can only be reconciled to a perfect God through his sacrifice, his perfect sinless life, his substitutionary death on our behalf. We need him. And yet it also reveals and proves the compassion of God for sinners. We saw the greatness of God in the empty tomb, and at the cross of Christ we see the goodness of God, the mercy of God. A really um, much more articulate pastor than I has said, we measure the power of God by the empty tomb. We measure the goodness of God by the cross of Christ. God shows his love for us and that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. So in light of the horrendous suffering that God was willing to let his son suffer on your behalf, how might you be tempted to doubt the goodness of God? How does this goodness of God as revealed at the cross of Christ remind you that even in the midst of any difficulty you're in, that God is good? That God is not turning away from you with a lack of compassion? That he is not removing himself from your situation if you are in Christ? He is good. If he didn't withhold his own son from you, won't he also give you all things that you need? How does the cross of Christ speak a reminder of God's goodness to you? The suffering servant won a humiliating success after a horrendous suffering, and he did it all to be our holy substitution. Let's get to the meat of this sandwich. Stanza 3, verse 4 to 6, our holy substitution. Verse 4. Surely 
He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned each and every one to his own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Tonight is a big night at the Parker House. Tonight's a big night at the Parker House. You heard a little allusion to it in the announcements. We're going to have cookies by the dozens, hot chocolate by the gallons, babies, friends, festivities, and I promise, I almost promise, I won't make you change a diaper or burp, Ezra. I will be uh, in the dad act of where to take care of all their needs. But uh, this week, as we, primarily Jen, has helped us prepare for the open house tonight, which you are all invited to. Please join us, 4 o'clock. As she helped prepare for the open house, she made more cookies than I can count. And she followed the recipe more precisely than I could ever imagine because she wanted to serve you guys good cookies. She didn't want to serve some like healthy substitute cookies. She didn't use the whole wheat flour in place of the white. She didn't put the applesauce in place of the eggs. Josiah is going to go nuts when he gets the real deal tonight. It's going to be wonderful. He won't sleep tonight just like he didn't sleep last night. It's going to be great for everyone but us. She didn't use substitutions because substitutions usually disappoint, especially in baking. But here in verse 4 to 6, we read of a needed and perfect substitute. Someone who stands in our place to do something we can't do. A very needed substitute. And it's the central message of the entire gospel. And it's boiled down into this. Christ dying for us. Christ dying instead of us. Jesus in my place to pay my price and win my peace. Christ dying for us, Christ dying instead of us. The sin-bearing substitute is put on full display. The spotlight in verse 4 to 6. Verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. It's he for we. The language of substitution. He for we. He bore our griefs. He carried our sorrows. Like a divine forklift... He takes every single pain that you could suffer in this world, every single punishment that you deserve for your sin, he puts it upon his shoulders and goes to the cross with it so that you won't have to if you believe in his work on your behalf. And yet, we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. We looked at him on the cross and we thought, this is surely suffering for personal sin. But it wasn't. It was he for we. Verse 5. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. He for we, from birth to death to new life. Jesus, it says here, was pierced fatally. He had railroad-sized spikes go through his hands and his feet for us. He was crushed. He bore the unquantifiable wrath of God against our sin. He was crushed for our iniquities and transgressions. The transgressions, those willful disobediences, those times when we know what God is asking of us, and we say, you know what? No thanks. I'd still rather go my own way. 
the iniquities, that natural bent and perversion towards just desiring things that aren't glorifying to God. We know that. Paul talks about that in Romans 7. We know what iniquities and transgressions are. He bore the penalty, the punishment that those deserve so we wouldn't have to. Guys, he for we is the mystery of the gospel. He for we is our only source of hope. And he for we, God substituting himself for man, is our ultimate hope in life and death because our central and core problem is we for he. (laughs) He for we is the remedy, the answer, to the, the solution to our proclivity towards we for he. Think back all the way to the garden in Genesis chapter 3. We for he began. Adam and Eve, perfect union and communion with God and one another. Here comes a serpent, tempting them with lies, tempting them to doubt God's goodness, disobey his commands. You know what they did? Substituted themselves in place of God. They believed lies instead of truth. They took the fruit. They ate it. Death entered Peace left. They were cast out, exiled. The most, most, excuse me, the most unholy exchange, the pursuit of man's glory for God's glory, trust in man's power instead of God's power, way way worse than whole wheat flour instead of white flour and cookies. The exchange of God's glory for man's glory? We would never do that, would we? No. Well, Paul says we do. In Romans chapter 1, participate in the same sort of exchange. (laughs) We for he is our problem too. And so he for we is our only answer. God substituting himself for us on the cross. 2 Corinthians 5.21 puts it most beautifully. God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Guys, it's his wounds for our healing. He was pierced to bring our peace. And he suffered even while we strayed. Verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The Lamb of God seeks the lost sheep of God. He comes after we. My goodness, it, it just keeps getting better. He comes after we. The perfect, righteous, suffering servant comes after those who would naturally run away from him. The gospel is so mysterious and yet so needed. See, left to our own, left to my own devices, left to your own devices, you know what race we'd run? We'd run that eternally vain marathon of trying to find life and peace apart from God. We would just keep looking past the one who is marred and disfigured, looking for someone who looked more powerful by our standards. But power looks like victory over the tomb. Power looks like humility at the cross, suffering for our sins. That's what power looks like. And so he had to come to us. The arm of the Lord had to be revealed to us. He came and rescues us who would otherwise stray. That's our only hope in life and death. He for we. But before you leave this room with a pat on the back and just in agreement of this theological truth, he for we, I want to ask, has, he, has it ever become true in your heart that it's not just he for we, it's he for me? He for me. See, we can agree that Jesus died for sinners based on theological truths in Scripture, but you cannot, hear me clearly, you, salvation is not possible unless it's he for me. 
Unless it's he for me. Unless you realize that it's your sin that put him on the cross. Unless you realize that his sacrifice on the cross, his sinless life, his bodily resurrection from the tomb was all in your place. Something you can't do. Something you don't deserve. Something you can't earn. It must become he for me. Nothing else saves. Not even all the good works you can imagine. Not even perfect church attendance. Being born into a Christian family. All certainly good gifts and good things, but not means of salvation. Salvation comes through faith in Christ alone. And so I can't let you leave this room unless I ask, has, has he become the substitute for me? Have you placed your faith in his work to reconcile you to the holy God? Because otherwise we're still unholy sinners separated from a holy God, not just now, but for eternity. Has he become me? This is how the Christian life begins. A step of dependence, not independence. And it's exactly how the Christian life gets lived out. It's never independence. That was Adam and Eve's problem in the garden. Substituting me for he. The Christian life is not about independence. Never thinking, I'm so good, I just need God when things are hard. The Christian life is a day-by-day step of obedient, willing dependence on the one who has brought about your eternal salvation. And so I want to invite you, first, to receive salvation if you have yet to receive salvation by placing your faith in him. But second, how might the Lord be inviting you to pursue his purposes by his power instead of living for your kingdom? How might the Lord be inviting you to pursue his purpose by your power, living for his kingdom, not yours? And I want to get real practical with this last example before we turn to worship. Many of us are going to be finding ourselves in very enjoyable moments over the next few days with holidays and family. But at the same time, many of us are going to be stretched. We're going to be, our patience is going to be tested. We're going to be pushed. We're going to be tempted to pursue our comfort, our desires especially when those in-laws start acting like outlaws. We're going to want our... I I am wrestling with this, praying for the fruit of the Spirit in my life, because left to my own devices, I'd rather just be comfortable and have my schedule in my way. But the Lord has redemptive potential brimming in every day of our lives. What's it going to look like over the next few days, just over the next few days, much less over the next years, for you to depend on the God who has saved you to pursue his glory, even when it would just be more comfortable to chit-chat, small talk, and say goodbye. How might you bring redemptive conversations into the holidays this week? Pursue this awareness of Christ died and risen for sinners. That's why we celebrate. The clock don't lie. <laughs> I gotta pray. <laughs> Guys, this is the suffering servant. This is the Messiah Isaiah wants us to see, to rejoice in, not just stand in ritual and cold familiarity yet. Let's prepare room in our hearts to celebrate him now in song. Let's pray. (coughs) Father, we love you. We thank you that you substitute yourself for us unholy sinners. And now, Lord, we turn to praise you in song, and we ask that your spirit would lead and fill us with your power to make much of you in all of our lives. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.